All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Nick, and I have the joy of serving as the youth pastor here at Citizens. If today is uh, your first time visiting Citizens, just want to welcome you to our church service. I know we celebrated Christmas this past Monday, so I hope that everyone had a safe and restful Christmas. And as today is New Year's Eve, uh, we'll be celebrating the New Year in just a few moments, I, I, I guess. I uh, want to wish everyone here a happy New Year. And uh, if it's not too much trouble, could you just turn to the person on your left and right and just wish them a happy new year? Awesome. Uh, well, today I have the privilege of bringing us God's word. And we're continuing our year-long sermon series called Childlike Wonder. We've been in this series for a few months now. Uh, and I wanted to kind of help refresh what this series is all about. Uh, what comes to your mind when you hear the phrase childlike wonder? For me, I think about my, I think about my children and how uh, all children have a unique super ability to be amazed. What I mean by super is they have this unique ability uh, to be impressed by pretty much anything and everything. It doesn't take very much for them to be genuinely wowed by something. Uh, one story, when my oldest daughter, who is now four and a half, uh, she loves to go to the park. When she went down a big kid slide for the first time, you should have seen her face. Uh, only way I can describe it is she was exploding. Uh, there was this joy, this animation in her spirit that was kind of uh, unmatched on the playground at the time, right? She's so excited that she can't help but announce it to everyone. She's shouting, did you see me, dad? Did you see me go down the slide? And I'm right next to her. So I'm like, baby, you don't have to yell. I held your hand down the whole way, right? Um, but, but she is unfazed and she's shouting at me like, that was so fast. I went so fast. Honestly, it was probably like a whole three miles per hour. But her joy and her excitement, her amazement is so infectious, right? So all of a sudden I'm hyped and I'm shouting with her like, Oh my gosh, you are like speeding down that slide. And we're getting excited together. I think this is a picture of childlike wonder. To be like a child and be able to find wonder without overcomplicating things. Being able to stay curious and go through life with fascination. And that's our hope in this series. That as a community, we would become more childlike before the Lord that we would cultivate a sense of fascination and curiosity with Jesus and who he is, a wonder towards God's goodness and love. And so as we sit under God's word this morning, as we continue this series, I want to invite you to adopt that mentality, to come as a child. Open up your hearts today. Let's entrust ourselves to the Spirit's work. And with eagerness, with delight, with curiosity, uh, let's receive all that God has for us today. Uh, with that being said, if you have your Bibles or on your devices, please open with me to Joshua chapter 6. Uh, it'll also be up on the screen behind me, uh, and today we'll be reading the whole chapter, uh, verses 1 to 27, okay? If you can choose your translation, I'll be reading from the NIV, okay, Joshua chapter 6. Let's give our full attention to the reading of God's word. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. 
March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. Verse 11, so he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with a sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So, young men, so the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, will he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joseph and his fame spread throughout the land. Amen. This is God's word for us today. Let's come to the Lord in prayer and then we'll begin.
Lord, we want to thank you for this morning, this very hour. We want to thank you for this year, and we want to acknowledge your faithfulness in this place. God, as we open up your word today, would you open up our hearts and our ears? Help us, God, to be yielded to you, submitted to your spirit and the work of your spirit. We pray, God, that you would speak to us and that you would deliver to us a timely word showing us who you are and how faithful you are. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, whether you've grown up in the church or not, I'm willing to bet that most of us uh, at least know of or have heard about this story that we just read, the story of Jericho. Um, I remember I heard this story for the first time when I started regularly attending church services when I was in the third grade. And at that age, uh, I just innocently believed all these Bible stories were more or less true. But in preparation for this message, I read this story over and over and over again, and I tried to imagine reading it for the very first time. And you know what I thought? Honestly, everything about this story is so ridiculous. And it's not just ridiculous, it's impossible, right? Logically, rationally, Nothing about this story makes any sense. See, Jericho was a fortress. It was guarded by two walls that surrounded the entire city. The outermost wall was estimated to be somewhere between 20 and 26 feet high. And there was a set, similar second wall that was built behind the outer wall on elevated ground some 40 plus feet above ground level. So you can imagine that this is a fortress. And yet the Bible tells us that the people of God march around this heavily fortified city for six days, they play trumpets, and on the seventh day, they walk around seven times playing trumpets, they throw in a communal shout at the right time, and we're told the walls come crashing down and they conquer the entire city that very day. How does this story make any sense? I try to imagine being there Maybe I'd be part of like the rear guard or something and I'm just kind of standing and I'm facing these giant walls, two towering walls, one higher than the other. And the plan I'm told, God's plan of action is to walk around it, play the trumpets, carry the ark, and don't forget to shout on the seventh day and all the walls will come tumbling down. I don't know about you, but if I were there, I would be panicking I think I would raise my hands and look around for my superior officer because I have some clarifying questions I need answered. Are we sure that this is going to happen? Are we sure that this is what we're going to do to overtake Jericho? See, this whole setup seems so ridiculous. But you know what the craziest part of this whole story is? The Israelites actually do it. No one backs down. No one is afraid. No one's asking questions. They get their marching orders from Joshua, and they march. And we're told the priests play the trumpets as they're told. The Ark of the Lord's Covenant follows the priests. There's an armed guard that goes in front of the priests, and there's a rear guard that follows the Ark. No one says a word. It's quiet. The trumpets are playing. They circle the city once, and they return to camp and go to sleep. They get up early the next morning, and without skipping a beat, they do it again the second day. They do this for six days, marching around the city, and on the seventh day, 
they march around the city seven times. And on the seventh time around, the priests sound a trumpet blast. And Joshua says, now is the time to shout. Shout because the Lord has given you this city. So the people shout, the wall collapses, everyone charges in and they take the city. As I'm imagining reading this for the first time, all I can think is what is going on? How is this possible? But as I kept rereading this text, I stopped thinking about how crazy this whole story is. And instead, I found myself asking the question, where did the Israelites get such crazy confidence? How could they trust God so wholeheartedly when nothing about God's plan makes any sense? I'm fairly certain that God will never call you and me to something exactly like Jericho, to walk around someplace playing trumpets. But I know that God does call those who follow him to trust him, even when his plans and his ways don't make any sense to us at times. So I see this story, and on one hand, all of it sounds crazy to me. But on the other hand, there's this desire in me that says, I want to be that crazy with confidence in God. I want to be that full of fearless trust in what God's plans for my life are. Right? When, if I'm honest, when I think about walking with God into the unknown, I'm not brimming with confidence. I'm actually nervous. Right? And I don't think I'm alone when I say that. I look at this new year that's ahead of us, 2024, and although I'm hopeful, I'm also uneasy. Uh, next year is election year, and I get worried uh, thinking about what the ripple effects of the election will do to our collective humanity. I look at the current state of the world, the ongoing wars, the rumors of wars, and I feel hopeless and lost. I'm wondering, God, where are you right now? I think about how as a young father, how I'm supposed to raise my daughters in this broken world, and I feel at times very lost. See, some of you are here, and you might be trying to navigate a broken relationship, and you're thinking to yourself, God, this feels impossible. How am I supposed to trust your plan for my life? Others of you, you feel the Spirit's invitation to stand up against darkness in your spheres of influence, in your friendships, in your jobs, in your homes, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God, and yet you're here wondering, how am I supposed to do that? I'm afraid to do that in the situation that I'm in. For others of us, as we look ahead to the new year, we can already see that difficult transitions are on the horizon. And the thought of trusting God and facing these overwhelming, unknown situations feels debilitating for you. You feel lost and alone and afraid. How can we come to trust God with utmost confidence? What we see in our passage is that the answer to that question isn't within ourselves. The answer to how we can have utmost confidence in God is to come face to face with the God who inspires such confidence in his people. There are at least three things that I think the Israelites learned about who God is 
that stirred up their confidence and trust in the Lord. And as we look at these three realities together, I pray that uh, God, by his spirit, will give you new strength and hope to trust the Lord as we enter into the new year. Okay, so the first thing that the Israelites learned about who God is, is that God makes promises. God is a promise-making God. Something important to note about this passage is that the Israelites who marched around Jericho are not the same Israelites who were delivered out of Egypt. If you remember from this series, uh, Israel has been enslaved under the power of uh, Israel has been enslaved under the power of Pharaoh for 400 years. God has heard their cries, and so He raises up a deliverer, Moses, to go and deliver God's people. Moses is raised up, he goes, and he performs miracle after miracle. And after 400 years, the people of God are set free. They experience the 10 plagues. They see Moses part the Red Sea. They cross the sea on dry ground. They hear the voice of God thundering at Mount Sinai. They receive the 10 commandments, right? This is the first generation. This generation that marched around Jericho, most of them weren't there for that. This is a new generation with a new leader. Most of the previous generation died in the wilderness due to their continual disobedience and unbelief. And even Moses, their great leader, because of his anger and unbelief, was banned from entering the promised land. So what this means is that this generation that just walked around Jericho, they didn't see the 10 plagues themselves. Most of them weren't at the parting of the Red Sea. All they have are stories that were passed down to them by their previous generation. This new generation was born in the wilderness holding on to a promise that was given to their parents. And that's the journey that they make. But by the time we get to Jericho, something has changed. After wandering in the desert for 40 years, this new generation emerges, and they're at the edge of the promised land. They're on the other side of the Jordan River. The only thing that separates the Israelites from the land God promised to their fathers is this river. You can imagine their excitement. My parents talked about this till the day they died. My parents held on to this promise in the wilderness, and I can finally see it in front of me. But before they cross the Jordan River to go into the promised land, God does something remarkable. In Joshua chapter 1, he says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, just as I promised Moses. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Be as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you, Joshua, will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Do you see what God is saying? God is essentially reaffirming his promises. He's making this old promise to this new generation. Same promise, but personalized to this new generation. And what he's trying to do, he's trying to get them to believe that God's promises are not just impersonal statements. They're not just contracts given by a contractor or a boss. The promises themselves symbolize God's self-giving, God's commitment to his people. He says things like, just as I promised Moses, 
just as I was with him, I will be with you. I will do this. I will give you this land. I will be with you. He's saying, I want you to know, Joshua, even though Moses and the generation who received the promise is gone, I'm still here with you. In fact, that's what we see echoed in Joshua chapter 6, verse 2. In verse 1, we're told that the, the city of Jericho, this fortress is barred shut. No one can get in and no one can get out. It's locked down. And yet God says, see, I have delivered them into your hands. God is saying, I've already won this battle. Don't forget the promise I've made to you. Every step of the way, God continues to reassure this generation of the promises that he's made to them by making them new again with this generation. I wonder if so much of our anxiety, fear, and lack of confidence is the result of forgetting that God is a personal God who makes personal promises to us in Christ Jesus. When I married my wife, on the day of our wedding, I stood in front of her before the presence of God, family, and friends, and I made my vows. I made promises to her, for better or for worse, until death do us part. But try to imagine a different scenario with me. Can you imagine if instead of giving her my wedding vows on my wedding day, on the day of my wedding, I didn't show up? And instead, my best man, my little brother, said to my uh, wife, Rochelle, uh, Nick wanted me to tell you that he promises to love you and only you, and he promises to be with you for better or for worse. See, I can tell by your faces <laughs> that your imaginary respect for me is gone, right? <laughs> Even though I didn't actually do it, right? Why is that? Because we all intuitively know that promises that mean anything good are always personal in nature. Promises that carry any weight and value and meaning to us always are tied to some personal relationship. And I think that's what God is trying to teach this new generation of Israelites. And I think that's what God is trying to remind us of this morning. That our relationship with him is not meant to be lived in the exact same context as the previous generation. That our faith is not meant to be lived out in the framework of everything that the previous generation used to do. No, but that God, the same God, wants a personal relationship with us, with his people today. But it's so easy to forget this, right? It's so easy to settle for an impersonal relationship with God. It's so easy to settle for an impersonal promise from God. But here's the thing about promises. They're only good they're only as good as the ones that are kept. So it's not enough that God just makes promises, but it's important that God keeps his promises. And that's the second point of today's message. God keeps every promise he makes. God keeps promises. Now, I just wanna say right away, uh, I think for the most of us, if we grew up in the church or familiar with the Christian tradition and faith, you know, I, I think I can give you many reasons to believe that God keeps all his promises. Um, but I, I don't think that would be helpful, right? Because this time is not uh, for me to come up here and tell you, why aren't you believing? You should believe this. 
I think all of us generally, if we have some faith background, would agree to that statement that God keeps all his promises. What's hard for us is that it's hard for us to believe this to be real in our lives because all of us have been hurt by broken promises. Some of us have experienced hurt by broken promises in the form of some kind of betrayal from someone close to us. Maybe a family member, a parent, an in-law, a sibling. Someone said one thing to you and they did the opposite. They betrayed your trust. Others of us have experienced the hurt of a broken promise in the form of deception from friends. People who we trusted, people who promised to have our backs, but instead of protecting us and covering us, what we find is that they've exploited us exposed us and used us for their gain. Others of us have experienced the pain and hurt of a broken promise because we have failed to keep a promise. We have caused others pain because of our hypocrisies, our irresponsibilities, and our own brokenness. And so understandably, the temptation is to think, why would God be any different? If you've been hurt by a broken promise, I understand if you're here going, Why would God be any different? It's hard to trust God because even if he hasn't broken a promise yet, there's this cynicism brewing that says, it's just a matter of time before God lets me down too. And it's kind of ironic actually, right? One broken promise and then we vow to ourselves to never trust promises again. If that's you, I just wanna say, I think that's a completely appropriate response. Understandably, whenever trust is broken, because of the nature of trust, we be, whenever it's broken, we become untrusting as a way of preserving ourselves, right? Trust is such a fragile thing. Trust, trust is such a precious thing. And I'm sure, sure you've seen people whose trust have been, has been broken before. You've seen what it does to them. You've seen it in yourself. We become defensive. People who are warm, hospitable, generous, and open, all of a sudden they become shut in, cold, impersonal. We don't want to trust anyone's promises because we don't want to be hurt again. And if that's you, if you've been hurt or let down because someone broke their promise to you, and therefore you hear this point, God keeps his promises, and you're kind of triggered, it's hard for you to trust this. I want to say, first of all, you have every right to be upset and untrusting. The only thing I'd like to gently submit to you is this. There is no one who has been more hurt by broken promises than God. And yet there is no one who is more willing to keep his promises to us than God. There's no one who's been lied to more, betrayed exploited, abused, and used more than God. There's no one who has experienced broken promises more than God. He hurts the most from broken promises, and yet what we find in Scripture is God, with tenderness, gently moving towards his people, always moving towards his people with kindness and mercy. I think about how God, I think about how God experienced all the broken promises, so much so that the first generation couldn't make it into the promised land. And it's crazy to me that in Joshua, we find God yet again renewing his promises to this new generation. 
even after the old generation failed him so many times. It's crazy to me that God is even willing to make promises yet again, and yet what we see in our text time and time again is that God makes promises and then God keeps promises. God is faithful to keep his promises even after all of Israel's unfaithfulness. And I think that's why they march around the city in this way. When God declares that Jericho is one and he tells Joshua to tell the people, I just want you to march around. The army's not gonna lift a finger. Their weapons are useless here. Just carry the ark of the Lord and march around and shout. It's to show God's people, it's not by the strength of their armies or by the strength of their zeal, but that the promise of God is kept because God is faithful to his promises. Israel's confidence comes in knowing God who makes personal promises to them and God who keeps every promise he's made. And lastly, God promises his presence. Uh, With a passage like this, it's really easy, I think, to hear a message on how if you just have enough faith, if you'll just shout your praises loud enough, if you'll just sing enough, God will bring all the walls in your life down. But the problem with a message like that is what happens when you do have faith? What happens when you have shouted your praises, you have sang your songs, you have prayed your prayers, and the walls still don't come down? What happens after you have trusted God and believed and pursued a job with integrity and the doors are still not opening? What happens when your relationships are still in crisis even after you've tried your best to do it the right way? See, this final point is really getting at the substance of God's promises. I think we often get let down and disappointed, get into a lot of trouble with God because we think God's promises are whatever we want it to be, that it's up for grabs, that we can define it as we please. Friends, God's promises are not whatever we want it to be, but they are the best thing for us. God's promises always center around his presence. In other words, the promises of God for you and for me in Christ Jesus are all designed to give us more of God himself. Sometimes that means we go through hardship and God allows testing of our faith, trials and tribulations. Sometimes it's through unexpected victories. All of God's promises are designed to give you his presence For Israel, the sign that God was with them, the sign of God's presence as they're fighting their battle at Jericho was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Lord's Covenant was a chest. It was a box that contained the stone tablets which had the Ten Commandments written on them. And this Ark of the Covenant kind of secured and treasured the fact that God had come down and made a promise to his people that they will be his people and he will be their God. But it didn't just serve that purpose, but the Ark of the Covenant was also used in worship for the atonement of the sins of the people. This Ark was placed in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, and once a year, the high priest would enter in, they would sacrifice an animal, sprinkle blood, and this was the only way that the atonement of sins would be made for the people of Israel. And so when this Ark is in the midst of this army and they're marching around, this is a sign that God is right and good and pleased to dwell with his people. 
For us today, we also have an ark, the tangible reminder of God's presence for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it's the cross of Jesus Christ. Just as the ark of the covenant was used in the atonement for sins for the Israelites in the Old Testament, the cross for us today declares that if you have put your faith in his life, death, and resurrection, atonement has been made. And if you trust in him, his promise is to be with us, to be with you always. I want to wrap up our time by looking just at the last portion of our text today. So the Israelites march around Jericho seven times. They shout, the walls come tumbling down. They charge in, and then we're brought to a pretty disturbing or difficult text. We're told that they go in and they devote everything in this city to the sword, to destruction by the sword. Men and women, young and old, living animals, everything is devoted to destruction. And we look at this passage and we wonder, what is going on here? Right? It's, it's uncomfortable for us because we don't like to assume that people aren't innocent. And yet, what we see in Canaan, when God commissions the people of Israel to go into Canaan, is that this nation is by no means innocent. They're full of adultery. They're full of idolatry and wickedness. And when God commands them to exercise judgment on his behalf, this is God meeting out his perfect, righteous justice. But what's odd about this passage is that in the midst of this, there's someone who's saved. There's a fascinating character, a fascinating woman by the name of Rahab. She's brought up in our passage. And we're told that when they go in to destroy everything, Rahab is an exception. Joshua tells the men, go bring out Rahab and her family. They will be spared. What's going on? In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab is one of the first people uh, that two spies that Joshua sent out to spy the land of Jericho uh, come in contact with. And Rahab says, I've heard about your God. I've heard about the God of Israel. He is the one true God. I know that God has promised this land to you. So I will hide you if you will spare my family. Spare me and my family. She makes an oath, a promise. And what's interesting about this passage is that even though everyone in Canaan, including Rahab, is wicked, she's a prostitute, somehow, some way, Rahab is the beneficiary of the promise of God. She receives the promise of God. She's spared. And Hebrews tells us that it's not because of her pedigree, it's not because of her achievements, it's not because of how religious she was, it was because she had faith. She had faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. In Hebrews, we're told that it was Rahab's faith that saved her, that she was not destroyed. See, Rahab is a reflection for all of us of how we get to access the promises and the presence of God. We don't get God's promises and his presence by our works, by our religion, by our good moral behavior. We get God's promises by faith in Jesus. What's really fascinating about Rahab is even though she's an outsider, even though she's a prostitute, even though she does not deserve the benefit of this promise to be spared and live in amongst the people of God, 
when you skip forward a few thousand years, a couple thousand years, and you look at Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus, do you know who's mentioned there? Rahab. Rahab is mentioned as being part of Jesus' family lineage. Rahab, this outsider, this prostitute, she didn't know all the right theology, she didn't know all the right doctrine, and yet she was saved by her faith. And through her faith, what we find is that Jesus, the greater Joshua, the greater Savior, the greater Deliverer, comes to us. Whereas Joshua would deliver and bring the people into the promised land by the destruction of Jericho. In Jesus, we see God being destroyed. We see Jesus and his body being destroyed so that he might tear the curtain in two and bring God's holy presence to us. In Jesus, our greater Joshua, we see how the cross that divides, the the, the chasm that divides us from God is bridged by his grace. In Jesus, it's possible for you and for me to experience this personal and intimate God, to experience his personal promises, and to experience his personal presence. As we're wrapping up this year and as we're looking ahead to this new year, I just want to encourage you. I hope that this will be a helpful reflection for you to just consider how has God been keeping his promise to me? How has God's presence been there all along? And as we journey into the unknown, as we step into this new year together, I I pray that we would be filled with uh, curiosity and eagerness to see God again in all of his faithfulness, in all of his goodness, and in all of his mercy. Let's pray together. just want to give you a moment to respond to God's word and come to the Lord in prayer. Um, If you're here this morning and uh, you hear what I'm saying, but you're having a hard time uh, believing or trusting, I want to invite you to just honestly confess that to the Lord. God is not disappointed or intimidated or surprised by your doubts, by your questions. In fact, What probably pleases him is to come as you are and to say help. For others of you, if you're here this morning and you are in a season and a place where you are experiencing and seeing God fulfilling his promises, seeing how God is giving you more of his presence in and through life, I want to invite you to take a moment to give thanks, to not forget that God has kept his promises to you And if you're new to faith and you want to uncover and discover more of this, I want to invite you to just ask God to show you the Lord Jesus today. To make his gospel clear and real to your heart by faith. Let's take a moment to pray together and then we'll close our time and sing with us, uh, uh, close our worship service with a song. Let's pray.
Lord, we give you thanks for your word to us today. And Lord, we want to be honest that it's hard to trust you many times. It's hard to be confident in your plans for our lives because so often it doesn't make any sense. And yet, God, we want to take comfort in knowing that doesn't change how committed you are towards us. You always go before us. You always cover everything behind us. And you promise that in this life, you will always be beside us, walking us through every hill and turn that we might face in this life. As we transition together as a community into the new year, God, I pray that you would help us to experience more deeply how personal you really are, that you're not a distant God, but you're a good father who has come close, sending your own son to be close to us. Pray that you would open up our hearts to your grace and help us to be mindful of your faithfulness in our lives. We love you, Lord, and we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I want to invite you to stand as we respond in a song of worship.